0: What a week of sports it has been, and from the beautiful, palatial, and extravaganza-filled Ultimatesportstalk.com radio studios. Good evening, everyone. I'm Dave Mitchell. Welcome to the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. Glad to have you along this evening. What a week of sports it has been, and we're going to get right into everything. I mean, Ohio State's 24-game winning streak came, unfortunately, to a close. The Browns lost What have the Indians done? Are the Reds going to trade Brandon Phillips? What's happening in the NBA and college basketball? And the NFL officiating still stinks. But first, well, I want to start out this evening's show by talking about the Ohio State-Michigan State game. I'm not one that is going to get into bashing coaches or bashing players or saying that this was done wrong or that was done wrong. It was a game that Michigan State came out and decided that they wanted to win. Michigan State literally had no pressure on them. They weren't expected to win. They weren't expected to go to the Rose Bowl. But they came out and played a very solid football game. Connor Cook for Michigan State played an outstanding game of quarterback. And the Michigan State defense did a decent job. Did they do an outstanding job against Ohio State? Not really. But they did a good enough job to end up winning that ballgame 34-24 and ending Ohio State's 24-game winning streak. And, of course, it was the first loss that the Buckeyes have suffered under head coach Urban Meyer in the two years that he has been in Columbus. Now, after the game, Meyer was receiving a lot of criticism as far as play calling was concerned why Carlos Hyde was pretty much taken out of the offense throughout the fourth quarter why they relied on Braxton Miller so much but there were a lot of things in this ball game that just proved that Ohio State had a lot of flaws and i think it's just a tribute to the coaching of Urban Meyer that the Buckeyes were able to go 24 straight games with victories and be able to win with the obvious flaws that this team has. I mean, let's take a look at the secondary. The secondary was just pathetic all year long. They tried to provide a different scheme about halfway through the season. That seemed to work, but the corners, especially Brandon Roby, were unable to cover anyone. Anybody who thinks Brandon Roby is a legitimate All-American player and even a legitimate second-round draft pick in the NFL has to go back and look at the films this year of the early games that the Buckeyes played. Now, of course, Roby missed the first two games, and I think, ironically, the game against Michigan State on Saturday night may have been the best game that Robey has played for the Buckeyes This season in the secondary. But C.J. Barnett was consistently out of position. They just were unable to cover the wide receivers that Michigan State had in the game. Now another problem the Buckeyes have had all year. Here's another problem. The tackling situation. They have not been very good at tackling people all year long. And that was the case on Saturday night. Missed tackles were one of the reasons that the Buckeyes were unable to stop Michigan State when they absolutely had to. I mean, let's face it. This was a tale of two quarters for each team. The first and fourth quarters went to Michigan State. The second and third quarters went to Ohio State. I really thought when Ohio State took the lead 24-17 early in the third quarter that they were really going to go on a roll. But then Michigan State... Seem to get their sea legs underneath them again, and it just proved that Michigan State was probably the best team in the Big Ten this year. Now, I've gone on and on and on this season that the Big Ten is a lot better conference and should be given more respect nationally than what they have been given. Everybody seems to want to just stand right up and say that the SEC is automatically the best conference in America. I don't think that's the case. I'm not sure they are. I'm not sure there is an overwhelming best conference in America. I mean, first of all, Florida State did just what we thought they would do to Duke. That that game was a joke. Florida State came in, they knew they were going to win that game, and they played like they knew they were going to win that game. Auburn and Missouri. I've got a lot of respect for Gary Pinkle, the coach of the Missouri Tigers. But in that football game, I have to question the sanity of both coaches, Gus Malzahn of Auburn and Pinkle of Missouri. Are you telling me that Pinkle couldn't figure out throughout that football game that a three-man line was not going to be able to stop the Auburn running game? And he let them run for over 500 yards in that game. And Davis ran for over 300 yards on his own. It was just a comedy to watch the coaches and how they reacted to each other in that game. And Auburn couldn't stop the Missouri passing game. I mean, if this is the best that the SEC has to offer, sure it was a high-scoring game. Sure it was exciting. Neither team had a defense that could stop anybody, and that was the main complaint about Ohio State all year, was their defense. And when Ohio State got up against a defense that was halfway decent, like Michigan State's, then Ohio State faltered to a certain extent, and they had to rely on their defense and proved that they couldn't. So what's going to happen with Auburn in the national championship game when they have to rely on their defense to stop the Heisman Trophy favorite, Jameis Winston, and the Florida State Seminoles. But again, as I say, the national championship dream for Ohio State is over for at least the 2013 college football season. Uh, Braxton Miller will return next year. Roby won't. Carlos Hyde will probably be a late first, early second round draft pick in the NFL. And hopefully the Buckeyes will be able to overcome the weaknesses that they showed this year And I think you're going to actually be seeing a different Ohio State team. This Ohio State team, this year especially, was more of a hybrid between Trestle Ball and Meyer Ball. It was more of a hybrid. You you got to see Carlos Hyde pound the ball in the middle, and then Braxton Miller running the read option. Okay, I think next year you're going to see more out of Braxton Miller since he has said that he will return. And who the Buckeyes play a running back will be a very interesting procedure to see who takes over the spot that Carlos Hyde had. But then that brings us into the bowl games and the final BCS standings. I found it very interesting that, forget the national championship game. That game was set up from the word go. Uh, Everybody wanted to see Auburn playing Florida State, well, that's what you've got. Okay, and that game uh, will be on the 6th in the Rose Bowl. Florida State 13-0 and against Auburn, 12-1. and Now, Florida State is an 8-5 to favorite. But let's look at the two bowl games that I think were extremely controversial. I'm going to explain why I think they ended up setting it up this way. On January 2nd, in the Sugar Bowl... Alabama is going to be playing Oklahoma. Now, Alabama, of course, is the two-time defending national champ, won't get a chance to defend their national championship this year. They're 11-1, and their lone loss coming to Auburn, and they'll be taking on Oklahoma at 10-2 and this year. That's in the Sugar Bowl on January 2nd. Now, the very next night in the Orange Bowl, Clemson, 10-2, and who did not win the ACC this year, we will take on Ohio State 12-1. and 1. I think the matchup everybody would have liked to have seen was Alabama, the preseason number one consensus team in the country, against the consensus number two preseason team in the country, and that was Ohio State. And you'd have the SEC playing the Big Ten. You would be able, the SEC people would say, hey, Let's shut down those Ohio State honks. And the Buckeyes would be out there wanting to beat Nick Saban, who used to coach at Toledo, used to coach at Michigan State, was a possibility for Brown's coach last year. They'd want to get back. I thought that would be a marquee matchup. Alabama against Ohio State in either the Orange Bowl or the Sugar Bowl. Now, see, it's going to be Stanford against Michigan State in the Rose Bowl. Now, had Ohio State made it, it wasn't guaranteed that Michigan State would make the Rose Bowl. But nonetheless, Michigan State, since they won the Big Ten and are not going into the national championship game, they get to go to the Rose Bowl and play Stanford. But I thought that the marquee matchup in this bowl season would be Alabama taking on the Buckeyes. Urban Meyer against Nick Saban. That was the game I think everybody wanted to see. The two teams that were arguing the most about who should have the shot at playing for the national championship. But no. They sent Ohio State to the Orange Bowl against Clemson and Taj Boyd, and Alabama to the Sugar Bowl to play Oklahoma. Now, the only reason I can think that they did this was simply money. They knew that Alabama would bring a truckload of people to whatever ballgame what bowl game they were going to be playing in. And Ohio State is the same way. They'd bring a truckload of people from Columbus and the state of Ohio to wherever bowl game they were going to be playing in. And that is what had to happen. Well, instead of pitting those two ball clubs against each other and selling out one bowl game, why not just go ahead and split the two and fill up two bowl games? Now they can fill up the Orange Bowl with Ohio State fans playing against Clemson, and they can fill up the Sugar Bowl with Alabama fans playing Oklahoma. It just makes sense. It fits money-wise. And that's why I think they set up the bowl situation the way they did this year. Now, the bowl situation is going to begin on December the 21st. Uh, Matter of fact, that's going to be in just about 10 days. And you've got four games on December 21st. And ironically, there's no games on Christmas Day this year. No bowl games. But here's a look at the games that are going to start off the bowl season on December 21st. 35 bowl games this year. We're going to start out with the New Mexico Bowl. That's going to be Colorado State 7-6, and 6, taking on Washington State at 6-6. and 6. In the Las Vegas Bowl, Fresno State 11-1 and 1, missed out on a BCS Bowl bid. And they'll be taking on USC. Who knows who will be coaching them they're nine and four. On december twenty first also, in the famous Idaho Potato Bowl, it's San Diego State seven and five taking on Mid American Conference second place finisher, Buffalo, at eight and four. And the final game that day is the New Orleans Bowl, where Tulane, out of Louisiana at seven and five, will be taking on Louisiana Lafayette at eight and four. Now the January first games, there are a plethora of them. Starts off with the Gator Bowl. Nebraska will play Georgia. The Heart of Dallas Bowl has UNLV taking on North Texas. The Capital One Bowl has Wisconsin taking on South Carolina. It's the Outback Bowl, Iowa playing LSU. There's a Big Ten SEC matchup along with the Wisconsin-South Carolina game. See, they paired up those. Michigan State will play in the Rose Bowl against Stanford. In the Fiesta Bowl, it's baylor against Central Florida. That should be a complete blowout for Baylor. Then, as I said, on the second, Alabama plays Oklahoma in the Sugar Bowl. On the third, Clemson plays Ohio State in the Orange Bowl. Also on the third in the Cotton Bowl, Oklahoma State takes on Missouri. On the fourth, it's the BBVA Compass Bowl, where Houston will play Vanderbilt. On January 5th, it's the GoDaddy Bowl, where Ball State takes on Arkansas State, and in the BCS title game, it is Florida State taking on Auburn. That game will be situated in the Rose Bowl this year. That's a look at the college football bowl schedule. All the prominent games coming up over the next few weeks. But now, of course, this is the time of year where you actually get into coaches moving. And I get to the point where I think the NCAA has to do something about coaches moving from team to team before bowl games have even been played. And one of the prime schools that is going to be looking for a coach, or at least it appears they're going to be looking for a coach as early as tomorrow, is the University of Texas. And we've been talking about this for so long, it's almost become ad nauseum, but Mac Brown is expected to resign tomorrow, according to a source. Now, OrangeBloods.com first reported on Tuesday that Brown would step down after 16 years as the Longhorns coach. Later Tuesday, Brown texted the website Horns247 and said, I haven't seen the article. I'm in Florida recruiting. If I had decided to step down, I sure wouldn't be killing myself down here. I have decided not to step down. Now on Wednesday morning, a source said there's nothing new today. I'm expecting that Friday will be the day of Brown's announcement. The source also said Tuesday, though, that the discussions have been ongoing with Brown, Texas President Bill Powers, and Brown's agent Joe Jamil. But Jamil has been involved in a high-profile murder case in Beaumont, Texas, which has slowed down everything but today Mac Brown did meet with the media and talked about his situation and said that nothing has changed as far as him being the head coach of the University of Texas Longhorns
1: Uh, I've got the best president in the country in Bill Powers he's unbelievable he's done a tremendous job for eight years what we did lose is an iconic athletic director in the Lost Odds that's been here 32 years and and has run the best program in the country uh, without question and um, he'd been my boss for 16 years. So we've hired what I think is a great athletic director and Steve Patterson. I got to visit with him a little bit in New York the other day, but I haven't had time to sit down and visit with him. And any time that your, your athletic director changes, that changes the game. So uh, with all due respect to, to him, I want to sit down with he and Bill in the near future and talk about where we're going and, and where our program's going. Um, I'm excited about our team and, and the way they fought back this year. They had more adversity than any team I've ever seen. We weren't excited to be 8-4, and four, but we were excited about the way they played and they fought and they competed, and it was a great message for all of us. So uh, moving forward, I'm looking forward to my meeting with, with Bill and, and with uh, Steve, um, and we'll all get on the same page and, and then move forward.
0: Well, I think it's going to be – Probably the last day as head coach of the University of Texas for Mac Brown tomorrow. It appears that he is going to step down. The, the source has reiterated again this afternoon that he would not be coaching at Texas. While nothing official has been announced as of yet, Texas, according to this source, already has a short list of candidates to replace him, and it includes... San Francisco 49ers coach Jim Harbaugh. Now, nobody has said that Harbaugh is interested in leaving the 49ers and going back to the college, but ESPN senior NFL insider and analyst Chris Mortensen has said that no talks have occurred between Harbaugh and Texas and no proposals have been exchanged. Harbaugh on Wednesday declined comment to report that he was on Texas's list. Brown, in his 16 years with the Longhorns, He has a record of 158 wins, 47 losses. He won the national championship following the 2005 season with Vince Young as his quarterback and Heisman Trophy winning quarterback he was. Brown's recent record, though, has been underwhelming. Texas has gone just 30-20 and the past four seasons, and they missed a bowl game altogether in 2010. Now, another coach that is rumored to be ready to take The Texas job, although he has spent half the year saying, no, I'm not taking this job, is Nick Saban from the University of Alabama. Now, the thing that is confusing to me is why Saban would even be remotely interested in the Texas job. To me, it would just be a lateral move. It would be going from what many say is the best conference in America to many say, A conference like the Big 12 that was ready to disband only one to two years ago because of all the defections out of that conference. You'd be moving from a great historical university and football program that Alabama has become over the years to a school that has great history and national championships overall in Texas. I can't see why Nick Saban would really be interested in the Texas job. And it's become apparent that Alabama will even match whatever salary Texas even comes close to offering Nick Saban. I would just be surprised at the age of 63 that Nick Saban would want to go to a new school, new state, new conference, and move along and try to rebuild the legacy of Texas football. But again, here we go. This is a coach that is in a bowl game that is being rumored for another job. You've got Steve Sarkazian. Sarkazian left the University of Washington to take the USC job. Now, he's not going to coach USC in the bowl game. And his squad, Washington, who he directed to an 8-4 and four record this year, will be playing BYU on December 27th in the fight-hunger bowl game, but yet Sarkeesian, who's been coaching that team all year long, will not be with those kids when they go to that bowl game to play. Same thing with Chris Peterson. Chris Peterson, after Sarkeesian left Washington, finally, after years of being rumored to be going everywhere, from USC to Texas to Miami to Florida, finally took another job, and it's evident that Peterson, I think, likes the Northwest part of the country because he went to the University of Washington. Now, he's not going to be taking over the Huskies' job in the bowl game. No. But he's also not going to be coaching Boise State in their bowl game against Oregon State when they play in the Hawaii Bowl on Christmas Eve Day, December 24th. I think it's a travesty that the NFL, or I'm sorry, that the NCAA needs to do something about. You've got these coaches that are able to jump before their bowl game. While the kids that are at that school, they have to go through a one-year or a two-year sit-out period if they want to transfer schools. I think the biggest atrocity happened a few years ago when Brian Kelly had an unbeaten Cincinnati going to a BCS bowl game with a chance to win a national championship. And he skipped the town to take the Notre Dame job right before the bowl game. And Cincinnati got blown out in the Orange Bowl. That was the biggest travesty that I have seen happen with that. And I continually say that the NCAA has got to do something. Why not move the signing period for high school football players back a couple weeks so that these coaches can finish out the season and they're not allowed to take another job or even interview for a job while this college football season is in session, especially if their team is going to a bowl game. The NCAA seems to want to flaunt their, their power all over the place. I think this is one place that they really could flaunt their power, and it would do some good. Well, Saturday night, four quarterbacks and two running backs have been named Heisman Trophy finalists and were invited to the Heisman Trophy ceremony in New York. This is the most since 1994. Here's the look at who the finalists are. Quarterbacks Jordan Lynch of Northern Illinois, Johnny Manziel of Texas A&M, A.J. McCarron of Alabama, and Jameis Winston of Florida State were all invited to the Heisman Trophy Ceremony Saturday night. Auburn's Trey Mason and Boston College's Andre Williams are the running backs. Winston is the overwhelming favorite to win the award as a freshman, and he could become the second straight freshman to win the award as the top player in college football after Manziel won it last season. Winston set freshman records by passing for over 3,800 yards and 38 touchdowns while leading number one Florida State into the BCS National Championship game. The Alabama native is on pace to break the NCAA record for passing efficiency. His rating is 190.1. Manziel passed for 3,700 yards, 255 more than last year when he won the Heisman. He also threw for nine more TDs, but his rushing stats were way down. Defenses learned how to attack him. Now, should Manziel win, he would be only the second player to win the award twice after Ohio State's Archie Griffin did it in 74 and 75. Williams... Ran for 2,100 yards this year, becoming the first player to pass the 2,000-yard mark since 2008. He ran for 17 touchdowns and averaged 6.4 yards a carry, but didn't catch a pass all season. Notable freshman who didn't win the Heisman, though. See, I I think this Heisman Award should be something that is considered a longevity award. Somebody who's put together a body of work, not just one year. Uh, I think it's a senior award. I think if you've got a senior that is right up there, you've got to give it to a senior. If you don't have a senior, you go to a junior, sophomore, freshman. And I think this year the winner should either be Andre Williams of Boston College or A.J. McCarran of Alabama. I don't know what else you can do as a quarterback that A.J. McCarran has not done. This kid just wins. To me, I think... He is the best quarterback coming out of college football today. He plays in a pro system. He's got a pro arm. He's got a pro head. He knows how to play under Nick Saban. You can't get any more tougher coach than Nick Saban unless you go play for Bill Belichick. Frankly, I think A.J. McCarran is going to be a great fit in New England and could be the heir apparent to Tom Brady. And I think if anybody takes a chance on McCarron, it will be Belichick at New England. But let's take a look at some notable freshmen who didn't win the Heisman. And the most recent one has to be Maurice Claret of Ohio State. Now, ESPN has got that show coming up here in the next couple of days, the Youngstown Boys, where it shows about Jim Trestle and Maurice Claret teaming up for the 2002 National Championship at Ohio State. Well, Claret, in one season at Ohio State, ran for over 1,200 yards, which is a school record for a freshman. He scored 18 touchdowns. Helped the Buckeyes to the 14-0 record and the 2002 National Championship game against the University of Miami where the Buckeyes won it. Who ended up winning the Heisman that year? Carson Palmer, the quarterback for USC. But here's one that you will be shocked at. Herschel Walker of Georgia back in 1980. He ran the ball 274 times as a freshman for the University of Georgia for over 1,600 yards, a six yards per carry average. Who won the Heisman that year? George Rogers out of South Carolina. He had 500 yards less rushing, but because he was a senior and Walker was a freshman, Rogers won the award. I think this is an award that needs to go to A.J. McCarron or Andre Williams. And that award will be given out Saturday night, 8 o'clock. You can watch it on ESPN. It's well publicized. Although, even though I'm pulling for McCarron and for Williams, the winner is probably going to be Jameis Winston of Florida State. be a very special edition of the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly tonight on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. You'll find out here in just a second. But first of all, the good for tonight. It's been a tough year for the Houston Texans. They have the worst record in the National Football League so far, and Andre Johnson is suffering because of it. His stats have continued to dwindle this season, but he's continuing to do the right thing for the kids around the Houston area. The Texans wide receiver held his 7th annual toy giveaway Tuesday morning. He gave 12 children and their brothers and sisters 80 seconds to grab whatever they could at a local Toys or Us store. The children, who were picked from Child Protective Services, were able to rack up a total bill of $17,352. Each child also received a gaming system and two games. Congratulations to Andre Johnson, bringing the meaning of Christmas into the Houston area for some kids that are very deserving. Here's the bad this week, again coming from the NFL. If you thought that the NFL was going to get off scot-free on their settlement with retired players in regards to the head injuries, well, you're wrong. Because former quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys, New York Giants, and Denver Broncos, Craig Morton, is now among the former players suing the NFL for not doing enough to prevent head injuries. You knew this had to be coming. The federal lawsuit filed this week claims the NFL had medical evidence of the toll head injuries take, but produced industry-funded, biased, and falsified research. It seeks unspecified damages for Morton, who is age 70. Another 39 players, including former pro bowler Corin Robinson, filed a federal lawsuit against the NFL, and helmet maker Riddell over concussions this week, seeking $75,000 each and a medical monitoring program paid for by the NFL. The NFL reached that $765 million settlement with former players earlier this year. But keep in mind, a third of that $765 million goes to the attorneys and into an educational system on how to teach tackling. The rest of it goes to over 10,000 players. So on the average, these players that are suffering from head injuries are going to only garner anywhere from five to twenty-five to $30,000 for what has happened to them over years of playing in the NFL. Now you can come back and say, hey, they knew they were playing a game That was violent. They knew that this kind of stuff could happen. But still, if the NFL kept this secret, they've got a problem. And I think the NFL is going to have a problem. The NFL already has a problem. And let's get into it because this is the ugly for this week. So let's just sit back and talk about the Cleveland Brown-New England Patriot football game last Sunday. Let's also talk about the New York Giants and the Washington Redskins game on December 1st. Let's talk about the Cincinnati Bengals and the Indianapolis Colts game last Sunday. And let's just talk about the officiating as a whole in the National Football League. Because I've said for years over the officiating in the NFL, it may not be fixed, but... The NFL gives it the illusion that it is. There are so many judgment calls in the NFL anymore. It used to be you you could say that you could call holding on each and every play. I still think you can. But now what has happened is you cannot play defense anymore in the NFL with the incessant pass interference penalties and defensive holding penalties. You can't rush the quarterback anymore because if you hit the quarterback Anywhere any longer, you've got the Tom Brady rule where if you hit them low, it's a personal foul penalty. If you hit them above the shoulders, it's a personal foul penalty. Heck, if you look at some of these ball games, if you hit a guy across the chest and your hand just happens to touch the helmet of the quarterback, it's a personal foul penalty. And now what you've got are these players that are trying to stay away from hitting people high, that now they're going low. And that's the biggest complaint that you've heard this week. Coming out of New England was the fact that Rob Gronkowski blew up his knee, his MCL and ACL, and is gone for at least the rest of this year and probably most, if not all, of next season because of the hit that T.J. Ward put on him in the third quarter of that football game on Sunday. That football game was a travesty to the NFL. It was the epitome of how an official could take a football game and turn it from one side, and in this case the Cleveland Browns, to another side, in this case the New England Patriots, in the final two minutes and nine seconds of that football game. It was unbelievable, the calls that were made during that game. First of all, let's go back to the Gronkowski injury. Gronkowski catches a football over the middle of the field, runs about 10 yards, and T.J. Ward, who's 5'10", 5'11", 200 pounds at the most, is assigned the responsibility of bringing down Gronkowski, who's 6'6", 6'7", close to 280 pounds. How is Ward supposed to do that? By going high? Forget that idea. Because Ward said after the ball game, if he went high on Gronkowski... What would have happened was he would have been fined, and he doesn't want to be fined anymore. So he went low, and he went right into Gronkowski's right knee, and it exploded at the time of impact. It used to be you would watch the NFL, and these players constantly tackled low. But then the NFL slowly but surely moved away from tackling somebody around the legs and ankles because of the knee injuries that were happening and move them up to start tackling above the waist, and basically encouraging them to go after the head. Well, now that the NFL has been involved in one concussion lawsuit with retired players, and now they're facing another, Roger Goodell, in his infamous hierarchy of the NFL, now wants to show that he is trying to do something because he wants to cut down any type of liability the league has monetarily toward players like Craig Morton and Corin Robinson of coming back against the league for head injuries. But in the case of doing that, the NFL has also opened up a can of worms with their officiating. Jeremy Boger was the head referee for the New England game against Cleveland on Sunday. And Jeff Triplett has been known for years to be one of the absolute worst referees that the NFL has seen in quite a while. Matter of fact, the last two weeks have been more trying for Triplett than we ever could have imagined because during the stretch that he was blowing a clock call in the New York Giants' 24-17 win over the Redskins on December 1st and blowing a red zone call that gave the Cincinnati Bengals a gift touchdown in their 42-28 win over Indy last Sunday. The league's worst referee was also dealing with some serious corporate issues. See, Triplet is the president and CEO of Arbiter Sports. It's a Utah-based company that deals in the organization of officiating crews the assignments of the officials, and the payments of those officials for multiple sports at high school and collegiate levels. On December 10th, everyone who had contacted the company's services received this email. This from Triplet, Dear valued customer, I'm just going to read the first paragraph. On, December, on Sunday, December 1st, and again on Wednesday, December 4th, our company suffered major computer hardware system failures. These failures caused our website to be inaccessible on Sunday for several hours and created unacceptable performance issues on these same systems Wednesday afternoon. Email notifications were also intermittent throughout the week as a result. Acceptable operating levels have been restored at this time. Well, in all honesty, that sounds a little bit like Triplett's career as an NFL official. He's been doing this since 1996. And if you go back in his history, of course, the blown call in the Redskins game on the first came about when one set of chains was moved to indicate a first down following a Robert Griffin, the third pass to receiver Pierre Gasson. Head coach Mike Shanahan then was told by the crew that he had a first down when he didn't, which affected his play calling, and the Redskins' drive ended on a turnover. Not that the turnover was the fault of Triplett's crew, But Shanahan's explanation after the game certainly cast doubt on the way Triplett handled the situation and his handle on the game. Shanahan told the media afterwards that he wanted a measurement. He said, no, you don't have to. It's a first down, is what Triplett told Shanahan. Shanahan said he saw the first down on the other side because in pro football they have the down markers on each sideline. And triplet signaled to move the chains on our side. And then when I asked why it was fourth down, Shanahan went to the official and said, you already told me it was first down. I want a measurement. Well, triplet told a pool reporter that we signaled third down on the field. The stakes were moved incorrectly. I feel like we signaled third down. If you're the referee, it's your job to check and make sure that those down markers are correct. You may signal it's third down, but if the down markers say fourth, first, or second, and the chains have been moved, and you know the chains have been moved, hey, you gotta blow your whistle, time out, let's get this fixed. Heavens knows these officials have absolutely no problem blowing their whistle and having a conference over anything else. Of course, NFL Vice President of Officiating, Dean Blandino, said the Triplet and his crew blew this one on several counts, including Triplet's refusal to stop the game to get the down right. Triplett said that he didn't do so because the Redskins had no timeouts remaining and stopping the clock would have given them an unfair advantage. Now, the call in the Bengals-Colts game was equally confusing. Triplett reversed a no-touchdown call for Cincinnati running back Ben Jarvis ellis after reviewing the play because, after review, the runner was not touched and went into the end zone. It's a touchdown. Well, according to the replay, Green-Ellis. Was touched by Colts defensive tackle Josh Tapman at the Indianapolis four yard line, and his knee hit the ground before he broke the plane. After the game, Triplett again told a pool reporter that there was discussion about whether the runner touched the goal line or not, implying that this was the only aspect of the play that was reviewable. When asked about Chapman possibly getting Green Ellis, Triplett appeared to be a bit confused again. He said, I don't know about that. What position? There was nobody that touched him at the goal line. Blandino had to come back and clarify that call also and correct it. If Triplett doesn't have a grasp on the ball game, and doesn't have an idea of what's going on, why is he still an NFL official? And that leads to Jeremy Bogart, the referee in the Browns-New England game. The incessant penalties in that ball game were amazing. Forget the fact that Gronkowski was hit low by T.J. Ward. Let's talk about the intentional grounding calls that Tom Brady got away with that Jason Campbell was not allowed to. For example, there were three times Tom Brady, it's all within the rules, well within the rules, not complaining about that, just bounced a pass to a running back five yards from him that wasn't even looking for the ball to escape a sack. But Jason Campbell rolls out to the right, gets almost to the numbers, throws the ball out of bounds to a, a Browns running back who was pushed to the ground at the time. And they call intentional grounding on that. How about the touchdown that pulled the Patriots within one point? There's another one. The pass was made to, to Edelman in the back of the end zone. Pryor for the Browns, while Edelman was still in the air, cradling the ball, hit him in the numbers, not up high, not out low, but in the numbers. Edelman then careened off of Pryor and into the goal post, and they called a personal foul against Pryor. That gave New England another 15 yards on the kickoff, closer to the Browns' end line, which made the onside's kick that they eventually got, even easier for them to perform. You know, I heard a lot this week that had the Browns just covered up the onside kick, that they would have won that football game. And you're absolutely right. Had the Browns completed a couple more plays, yeah, they probably would have won that game. Had the Browns stopped New England a couple more times, yeah, they would have won that game. But the fact of the matter is, is that the game was played at the pace that it was. And when you give New England chance after chance after chance, especially on a personal foul call in the end zone, and then the pass interference penalty against Lee McFadden, which was a phantom pass interference penalty at best, you have to wonder where the NFL comes down on this incident. Roger Goodell has got this league set up to where he knows exactly how things are going to happen Every Sunday, every Thursday, every Monday night. And all you've got to do to see that the officiating in this league is screwed up is look at the Mike Tomlin incident on Thanksgiving, in which he was not flagged for being on the field and stopping a kickoff return by Jacoby Jones against his Steelers squad. Because if you look at the replay of that tape, Mike Tomlin was on the field when he saw Jones behind him up on the big screen TV. He jumped to his left and almost jumped into the official who was running up the sideline following Jones. But did that official, who had to jump out of the way of Tomlin when Tomlin jumped into him, throw the flag? No. And that's where the NFL has a problem. It's the same problem the NBA has had for years. And the NBA finally was caught cheating. How much longer is it going to take for the NFL before they are caught cheating, before Roger Goodell has another major calamity on his hands? The tenure of Roger Goodell as commissioner of the NBA has been the most controversial and the most erroneous of any commissioner ever in the history of sports. And it's time Goodell stepped down, and if the owners don't want to continue to squeeze the life out of the golden goose that they have, well, then the NFL may go the wayside. That's the good, the bad, and the ugly for this evening. Well, I said we'd be jumping around all over the place tonight, and we're going to continue to do that. But let's continue by looking into the NFL and a big game going on tonight on the weekend NFL schedule, week 15 of the season. And this week it is a big AFC Western Division fight between the San Diego Chargers going to Mile High Stadium to take on Peyton Manning, and the Denver Broncos. That game is at 825 tonight on the NFL Network, so just about 45 minutes from now. Brian Billick, former NFL coach, takes a look at tonight's contest between these two divisional fellows.
2: Based on what we saw in Denver, where the Tennessee Titans really kind of ran up and down the field, and it took a 50-point... 50-point-plus effort by the Denver Broncos. The San Diego Chargers and Phillip Rivers are playing very, very well, and they're much more capable of putting up a lot of points than are the Tennessee Titans. So this thing could be a real shootout. Both defenses are struggling a little bit. Uh, again, we talk about how difficult it is to go on the road and win. San Diego's holding on all but the briefest of hope for a playoff spot. And Denver clearly recognizes that home field advantage is going to be the key, much like Seattle in the NFC. I haven't seen anybody in the AFC that I have confidence in that could go through Denver on the way to the Super Bowl. So they understand the importance of this, not only in the division, but also obviously to hold on to that home field Throughout the playoffs, I'm going to be looking to see if, indeed, Denver can step up to the challenge of taking on a high-flying San Diego offense with Phillip Rivers, and it's worth uh, the price of admission to see this young receiver, Keenan Allen, out of Cal. He's having a phenomenal year.
0: I think Billick is right. The only thing that's going to stop Denver from going to the Super Bowl will be Denver. Uh, they, if they've got the home field advantage throughout the entire AFC playoffs, the only thing that will stop them is if Peyton Manning does have trouble throwing the ball in cold weather. That game is tonight, as I said, just about 45 minutes from now. Now, on Sunday afternoon, here's a look at the early games, and we're going to start out in Cleveland where the Browns will play their final home game of the year, thank heavens, as they take on the Chicago Bears. And the Bears are going back to their old stalwart, Jay Cutler. He'll be the starting quarterback for the Bears. It was announced today by head coach Mark Trestman, and they will be taking on the Browns. The Browns looking for a draft pick in their own franchise quarterback. The Bears looking for a playoff spot. That game is at 1 o'clock on Fox. Take the Bears in that ballgame. Elsewhere, San Francisco will be at Tampa Bay. That's at 1 o'clock on Fox. I'm going with the 49ers in that one. Seattle will be going cross-country again to take on the Giants in New York City. I'll take the Seahawks. Philadelphia at Minnesota. Got to stick with the Eagles in that one. Hopefully the weather will be better for the Eagles in this one. New England will be at Miami. I'm going to say that the Miami Dolphins are going to pull an upset. New England has not played well the last five weeks. And Miami, if they're going to make the playoffs and have to prove that they are a tough ball club, they have to start winning games like this. Take the Dolphins. Buffalo will be at Jacksonville. I'm going to stick with Jacksonville. They are the hottest team in pro football right now after starting out so poorly. Houston will be at Indianapolis. Who's going to start that game? Who knows, but it will be the first game for the Texans without their former head coach, Gary Kubiak. And, of course, the ongoing saga in Washington between owner Dan Snyder, coach Mike Shanahan, quarterback RG3, Kirk Cousins, the fans... The Indian tribes, Roger Goodell, while Washington is going to be in Atlanta, and Mike Shanahan finally made it official yesterday. He is going to start former Michigan State quarterback in second year that Kirk Cousins for the last three games for the Redskins this year because he thinks RG3 is not completely healthy and not playing very well. Well, one of Shanahan's old players back with the Denver Broncos when they were winning a pair of Super Bowls, John Lynch, talks about what's going on in Washington and if this is the right move for RG3 and Mike Shanahan. I
2: I do not agree with move, and I think if you did make that move, why not do it to start the season? I mean, that's when his health really was in peril. He's played now. He's got himself uh, to, to where he can protect himself and whatnot now. Here's what I do know about Mike Shanahan. I know him well. I played for him for four years. He's a very smart man, and mm-hmm. there's nothing with his words or his actions that he hasn't thought through. There's nothing that comes out of his mouth that is an accident. He he thinks through everything, and I'm not going to get into what his motives are because I think only Mike knows what his motives are, but it's calculated. It's thought through. He He's thought through all of this, and uh You know, here's why Robert Griffin's mad. because you know who they're playing the next two games? The Atlanta Falcons, 26th-ranked defense in the NFL, (laughs) and the Dallas Cowboys, 32nd, that's last in the NFL.
0: Well, that may be the case, but I've heard all day long on ESPN and talk shows all over the country that the reason that Mike Shanahan is doing this is sort of to throw it back into the face of RG3, who was doing it throughout the preseason when he was coming back from his injury, to throw it back into the face of Dan Snyder, how Shanahan has one year left on his contract, and he wants to get that last year of his contract by being fired, and that's one of the reasons that he's doing this. I've got a different take on this. See, when Washington got RG3, they traded a boatload. Of draft picks. And that was the main reason I did not want to see the Cleveland Browns make the deal that they were eventually outbid by the Washington Redskins by giving up three number ones and two number twos. Because what that has done to Washington, it has depleted them of the necessary talent to surround RG3 when he is not playing well. As you heard a lot of people say over the last couple of days, RG3 is not the same as he was a year ago, even when he hurt his knee. He doesn't have the explosiveness. His arm strength just is not there. Something is missing, and he's not very good at running this West Coast offense, whether he be in the pocket or out of the pocket. It doesn't matter. But I think there's a different reason why they are sitting RG3, and I think it's the fact that they are going to show off Kirk Cousins Over the last three games. They've got to do something to replenish their draft picks. And I think that maybe they think that they could start Kirk Cousins over the next three games. And maybe pick up two, maybe even three draft picks for Kirk Cousins to the right team. The Cleveland Browns need a quarterback. Now I doubt if the Browns are interested in Cousins. But nonetheless, they've got a lot of draft picks stockpiled. And there are other teams out there that have draft picks stockpiled, too. And if Kirk Cousins can show what he's made of over the last three games, Washington may choose to trade him and go after some draft picks in the upcoming draft. Now, elsewhere in the NFL, the late games, Kansas City will be at Oakland. The New York Jets are at Carolina. I'm going to take Kansas City in the game at Oakland, and I'm going to take Carolina in the game against the New York Jets. Green Bay will be at Dallas. Now, Aaron Rodgers is not playing for the Packers, but yet Tony Romo can't seem to win a game in December, and the Dallas Cowboys, as you heard earlier, have the worst defense in the NFL. I hate to pick against Dallas in Dallas, so I'm not going to. I'm going to take the Cowboys over the Packers. Arizona will be playing at Tennessee. I've got to take the Cardinals in that game because the Cardinals are still in the thick of things for a playoff spot. New Orleans will be at St. Louis. Take New Orleans to win that game, even though it's outside. And the Sunday night game, Cincinnati will be at Pittsburgh, a big AFC North contest. Cincinnati needs this one. So does Pittsburgh, though. I'm going to take Cincinnati to win in the Steel City. And the Monday night game, Baltimore will be at Detroit. This is a game that both teams desperately need going into the last two weeks of the season. But since the game is in Detroit at Ford Field, I'm going to take the Lions to win that contest in Monday night football. That's going to do it for football this week. Let's move into what's happened over the past few hours at the winter baseball meetings in Florida. And, and let's find out from Ken Rosenthal and John Paul Morosi just exactly what is going on with the winter meetings. There were a couple of things that happened this afternoon. Jabba Chamberlain signed on. He's left the New York Yankees and he is going to Detroit. And then, of course, yesterday, the Veterans Committee named three managers, Tony La Russa, Joe Torre, and Bobby Cox, into the Hall of Fame in July. And Ken Rosenthal talks about what's going on there.
3: A managerial Mount Rushmore, Joe Torre, Bobby Cox, Tony La Russa, all elected to the Hall of Fame. La Russa told me that was the best part about all this, going in with Cox and Torre, and Torre said much the same thing.
1: Did I think it was going to happen? I hoped it would happen. I I mean, I when I looked at uh, you know when I looked at it like Bobby should be in and Tony should be in, and there I am with them, you know, being on the ballot. So uh, you know, I hoped it would happen, and it couldn't happen any better as far as I'm concerned. Sure, I'd like to see George in and Marvin, but to go in with these two guys, uh, it would have been a Ashamed to have one one of us miss this if the two the other two were going in.
3: The other major news on Monday concerned a pitcher who one day could be in the Hall of Fame. Roy Halladay announced his retirement as a Toronto Blue Jay.
1: It's an exciting day for us. Um, there's a lot for me to look forward to. Uh, you know, it's uh, baseball has been so great to me, and you know my goal is to try and leave better baseball better than when I found it. And uh, I've tried to do that in my career. Uh, I've tried to be respectful to the game um, and do things the right way. Uh, and, and I've tried to do that to the best of my ability. Um, and moving forward, I'd, I'd like to do the same.
3: And now I'm joined by John Paul Morosi. Some big hot stove news brewing on Monday. The Shinsu Chu market appears to be reaching a critical stage. I'm told that the Rangers and Diamondbacks both are in. Other teams could be in as well. J.P., we know the money is going to be big. Kenny, two left-handed starters whose names were flying around this lobby today, Chris Sale of the White Sox and David Price of the Rays. Price, of course, a familiar trade rumor name. Sale, somewhat new, although I heard from sources the White Sox are willing to listen on sale. Six years of control on him, the price would be very high. Speaking of high prices, we finally should get some clarity very soon on Masahiro Tanaka coming over from Japan. I understand he will be coming over, likely, with an announcement coming within the next couple days. All right, one more pitching note. The Twins already have signed Ricky Nolasco and Phil Hughes for a combined $73 million. Now I understand their talks with Bronson Arroyo are gaining momentum. You
0: know, I was really upset earlier this week when the Los Angeles Angels traded right fielder Mark Trumbo and a player to be named later to Arizona for left-handed pitcher Hector Santiago and left-handed pitcher Tyler Skaggs. I really wanted to see Trumbo in an Indians uniform. Then Oakland turned around and got a kid that I think is going to have an outstanding career if somebody can really coach him up. They traded left-handed pitcher Brett Anderson in cash to Colorado for former Indians farmhand and left-handed pitcher Drew Pomeranz and right-handed pitcher Chris Jensen. But the craziest rumor that came out of the winter meetings yesterday was Cincinnati offering Brandon Phillips, an all-star second baseman, to the Yankees for Brett Gardner even up. Nobody else in the deal. And the Yankees turned it down. I don't know which team was dumber, the Reds for offering this deal or the Yankees for turning it down. Then the Yankees turned around and said, well, maybe we'll consider it if you throw Homer Bailey into the deal. So the Yankees want Brandon Phillips and Homer Bailey for Brett Gardner, and the Yankees went out and signed two outfielders this year, and they really don't have a spot for Gardner, but yet they want two All-Stars in return? Wow. The Yankees must really have delusions of grandeur. A couple other players I want to mention to you. As Rosenthal mentioned here just a few moments ago, Shin Su Chu, he is being courted by Detroit, Seattle, and Texas. And Nelson Cruz, who's also a free agent, is being courted by none other than the Cincinnati Reds. And he would look good in a Reds uniform. And, of course, Major League Baseball is adopting the proposal to take the home plate collision out of the game, that's been traditional, yet increasing, increasingly violent. Throughout history, contact-seeking base runners were lionized for their toughness, as were catchers who absorbed the hits. But now what's going on is baseball is going to eliminate it. Baseball still needs to draft specific language to outlaw the play then send the formal proposal to the Players Association for approval. That approval is expected as early as January, allowing the rule to be in place for next season. Now, basically how it's going to be is home plate will be treated the same as the other three bases. A fielder will not be allowed to block the base without the ball, and the runner cannot simply run over a fielder. The rule will also be adopted in the minor leagues, which means the home plate collision which has been banned for years on all amateur levels, will be legislated out of baseball. Well, that's going to do it for tonight's show. Boy, thanks for joining us here this evening on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. Glad you could stick around. We've been talking about a lot of things this evening, and it's just been an interesting week. And we'll be back next week with another Ultimate Sports Talk Show. But as always, that music signifies that the show for tonight is over. Thanks for joining me here tonight. My thanks to Greg Mitchell for producing the show. But most of all, our thanks to you for listening. We'll be back next Thursday night with our final show for the year 2013. Until then, I'm Dave Mitchell. Have a good night, a good weekend, and we'll talk to you next week. See you later, everybody. Good night.